This is TDPS. Eric! Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm gonna set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Gwen. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And um, we are today back to a criminal case that we have talked about, an unsolved murder case we have talked about repeatedly here on the show. And we're not back to it. We've been at it right along. But we're back on the show (laughs) to it because... We never stop talking about this. We never stop talking about this case. We're not, this is not True Crime TV Club. We're not talking about a TV special or a movie today. We're talking about a murder that we really feel like was a murder in our community. Our hometown murder. In our hometown, right? Like to borrow a phrase from the podcast, My Favorite Murder, they talk about hometowns. This is really our hometown. That's the murder of William Arnold Newton, uh, Billy Newton, as we often call him. He performed in gay adult films as Billy London. Uh, so if you are internet searching on the case, Billy London may turn up more hits than Billy Newton. Maybe. But, um, that's re- his name was really Billy Newton, and so that's that's how we refer to him here on the show. Um, we have done many episodes on this case, which I will list off for you now. They sort of chart our evolution as our relationship to this case, our growing interest in it. Uh, the later episodes include interviews with... The LAPD detective John Lamberti, who is now in charge of this case file, a documentarian named Rachel Mason, who is also interested in the case. Uh, The episode numbers, you can find them in our library, episode 37, 48, 60, 63, and 74, all available on any podcast app you listen to us on, but also at thedinnerpartyshow.com. That said, please don't feel like you have to go back and listen to all of those episodes right now to enjoy what we're going to talk about today or to appreciate what we're going to talk about today, I should say, uh, because we will but give you— But they're all pretty enjoyable themselves, so— Well, you know, I think that— <laughs> You could go and enjoy those podcasts, and they're also very informative, yeah. so— But we will, tr- we will try to give you a baseline review of the case, what is known about the case— but also what is not known, because that's really, um, you know, we have been talking about this some in terms of there was a recent uh, podcast called Your Own Backyard, which really contributed to the long unsolved uh, murder of Kristen Smart, which happened in Central California 
She was a student at Cal uh, Poly San Luis Obispo who went missing one night in 1996. Her body has never been found. Um, we'll talk some, I think, about why a podcaster was able to advance that case. Chris Lambert, the podcaster we're referring to, is a very talented guy who has rightfully gotten a lot of credit for what he's done. But there were pieces of evidence available to him that are not yet available to anybody in the murder of Billy Newton, even though with Billy we do have body parts what, and evidence. What pieces of evidence did, did it, that were unique to that? Because the, the, I've read recently that right. they've decided to, or they a judge has ruled that they do have grounds to try. I don't know that they will. Um, their suspect and his father, but but what pieces of evidence did uh, the Lambert Lambert? Yeah, Chris Lambert is Chris his Lambert. Name. I, the, what, I cannot what was he able I, to. Yeah, I will answer. Let me answer the question, but I'm going to say this: I cannot recommend the podcast highly enough. I was so blown away by it. It wow. started out as an independent venture from one guy who was a musician. He hadn't really done a true crime podcast before. It's become this phenomenon because of the impact it's had. What it had from the beginning was a very compelling circumstantial case against one man. Right. What it also what it didn't have was a body, and it still doesn't have a body. Very but it, strange. At this point, because of the warrants that were issued uh, more recently and the searches that were conducted on various properties of the person who has always been the number one suspect, they have what they believe to be an evidence trail of of. The, the repeated movement of a body. They have evidence that suggested one part of this um, lawn in particular at a home belonging to the parents of the number one suspect was in fact recently dug up. And there's, a, I think, something in it they refer to as almost like a bathtub drain structure that suggests... Bathtub ring. A bathtub ring, right. Um, so the, the, the podcast Your Own Backyard is really the story of how this one man has managed to step just outside the bounds of law enforcement or the reach of law enforcement at every turn. And this is something that has happened consistently over years, since 1996, which is when the disappearance took place. So Chris Lambert has the ability to parse this mountain of evidence, but also court records, public filings. Uh, I think there is a there is a hearing where Paul Flores, who is the number one suspect, the man who's now going to trial, is going to be, who's been charged... Uh, entirely on the basis of circumstantial right. evidence, um, where he invokes his Fifth Amendment right in response to every question he has asked in the course of a hearing, um, a deposition, I guess you would say, that lasts several hours. Uh -huh. And Chris Lambert, as a means of sort of drawing attention to his post uh, podcast, excuse me, asked his people to guess how many times Paul Flores said, I hereby invoke my Fifth Amendment right. Because he didn't just say it universally. He said it every time in response to every question. Right. So um, I don't want to take us all the way down the Kristen Smart hole in this particular moment, but it's a different story. What we have with Billy Newton is we have a severed head and his severed feet discovered in a dumpster each tied in heavily knotted trash bags, one of which was opened enough. And this is sort of a piece this of This is a recent yeah. discovery from us. We, we, we had recently, we had um, a social gathering that right. included the, uh, the lieutenant mm -hmm. who um, actually became more interested in the case as a result of hearing our podcast and yeah. um, the information we, that you all brought that one of our listeners actually brought to the um, the 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 email the the email address that we have set up for any tips, any even recollections about Billy Newton from anyone who might have crossed paths with him, but but particularly anyone who might have information about his last movements through West Hollywood, the weekend of October twenty eighth and 29th, nineteen ninety, is William Newton Investigation at gmail .com. We through that email address received an email from a gentleman named Ron Wheeler who gave us the permission to talk about his story on the air saying that he was present at Rage Nightclub in West Hollywood, no longer open, but was a very popular gay nightclub here for many years. He was there and introduced to Billy that evening um, when the sun was still out that he saw Billy leave in the company of a man that Ron himself had talked to and expressed a flirty interest in who had right. apparently not been interested back. Or was more interested in Billy. At any rate, Ron's story is that Billy left in the company of this man 
and that almost a year later, when he was in another state, Ron looked up at the television screen, saw that man on television, because that man was Jeffrey Dahmer, and he was being arrested for a string of serial murders in Milwaukee. That is all information that we were able to bring to you here on the podcast, which are contained in all of those episodes that we mentioned previously. So we're sort of reviewing the baseline of it for you now. And we don't know for a fact that it was Jeffrey Dahmer, but Ron said that that's what the guy looked like right. at the bar, the guy who left with Billy. So it was really eye-opening. The, the thing that was the most eye-opening mm-hmm. was that it was the first account of someone seeing Billy leave the bar. Right. And that he left the bar in the company of somebody. That to to the police officer, to um, Lieutenant... Lieutenant? I think it's Detective Lamberti. We should ask Lam- him. I'll call him and ask him if know. we just promoted him on our show. I don't show. know. But Detective Lamberti. <laughs> John um, Lamberti, right. I don't, he said that was the thing that was the, more, the most significant to him that, yeah. that he had heard from the podcast. And he clarified something for us when we met with him recently, which is we were under the, we were under the impression, based on some other official sources, that the police felt they had nailed down a specific time at which Billy had left the nightclub. And it turns out they don't feel that way. They don't feel that prior to Ron Wheeler's statement, there was specific, uh, testimony isn't necessarily the right word, a specific eyewitness account that gave them a definitive moment slash time at right. which Billy Newton walked out of Rage Nightclub That he was alone. even there, but, that, yeah. but certainly that he left and did yeah. not alone. But let's go back to what we were just about to talk about, because I sort of I went into the whole story. Right. Another, something that we have really gone back and forth about here in a speculative way was, okay, I'm I'm a I'm a sadistic, brutal killer. I've dismembered a body in several hours' time, right? And that's the thing that I think you have pointed out again and again, right? That whoever, I'll I'll let you say your signature line here. Well, it's the, that whoever. Um Billy left that bar with, or whoever did this crime, when he met Billy, he was planning to kill him. Like, because, right. this was not a spontaneous event. Right. And because the prep required to execute a dismemberment this extensive to deal with the volume of blood that would have been caused by this event, you simply had to have a space cleared. You had to have the means to do it. It was, it was yeah, not. You didn't take somebody back to your hotel room and do no, this. It was, no. it would, re- not with it. Without alerting every authority on the planet, the, yeah. there had to be a place mm-hmm. pre-designed for this part of the, the crime. It just it's, it's a very proficient murder. It's a very proficient murder. So we would always ask the question of, a bag was apparently torn, which is why when a transient opened that particular dumpster that morning and, and saw part of Billy's face, that this murder was even discovered. But we thought... How was the bag torn? Was it because it was thrown into the dumpster in a sloppy manner? Uh, was the person hoping that this would exactly, be discovered? Was there exactly. some sort of show on, showboating going on? Where where were we? And um, Detective Lamberti set us straight. He set us straight because he basically said they know that the tear in that bag was caused by the transient who was dumpster diving, looking for food, looking for goods, looking for one man's trash is another man's treasure. And that the transient undoubtedly tore open what was, in fact, a heavily knotted trash bag in which Billy's head was. So it wasn't – it looks as if the killer took every effort that they could to make sure that this disposal was as efficient as they could be. Right. This was not somebody looking to get caught. They just figured that the – the trash trucks would come along, empty the dumpster, and right. that would be the end of that. The, the 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 head and the feet were very well secured, and they were all that was in there. They never found any other parts of right. of uh, Billy's body, and so we don't know where they were disposed. But we assume that it was in a like manner. What what we also now know, which the which Lamberti was able to share with us, is that every dumpster within a two mile radius was searched, which was pretty impressive. Yeah. One of the things we thought initially going into this case that maybe part of the reason it had gone unsolved for so long was because of who Billy was 
where he was from and, you know, being a gay boy and maybe working on the fringes of sex worker society and whatever Mm -hmm. might not have been taken as seriously. And nothing could be further from the truth. Every time we turn around, we get a piece of evidence like every dumpster in a two mile radius in the middle of Hollywood. Trust me, that is an enormous undertaking. Yeah. That is an enormous undertaking. And I think, yeah, it dovetails with a lot of, because the first, we're always keeping track because we look at the internet comments we get about these episodes in this case because we're trying to create conversation there that can be helpful to the case and keep Billy's name alive. But But I'm well familiar with the first places people's heads go to when they talk about this case. And it's it's understandable. And it's reflexive, and I have said my own version of it over the years before we really started looking into this. I bet the police didn't give a shit because he was a gay guy. We're not seeing the evidence of that. There's no evidence of that. We're not seeing. This was a very exhaustive, thorough investigation. People who were questioned described detectives bringing in voluminous notebooks and setting them on the table. This was a really upsetting, gruesome murder that stayed with the detectives who worked on it. There were detectives long retired who still consider this the case that got away. Yeah. There, there were detectives long retired who are still interested in an outcome that yeah. have been reached out to. Some of them are not necessarily dying to be reattributed. And some of it has to do with professionalism. They prefer that um, we actually talk with the detective in charge. And we have. He, yeah. he actually, one of the greatest surprises of all of this to us was that he actually got in touch with us. Yeah. Like, we didn't know he existed. In fact, we did Eric Shaw Quinn. I made Christopher do yes. due diligence on confirming that he really did exist before right. we reached, uh, before we responded to him. Because well, I just thought anybody could, like, claim to be the detective in charge uh, well, of this. Well, and you and I have watched a lot of crime shows, and we've seen that we've seen that used to get to people. Because what he was about was he was responding to the Ron Wheeler story that we had put on the podcast. Right. And he was saying, I would like to interview Ron Wheeler. This, this, there is and a, you put me in touch with Ron. And, and so Eric's point, which I think was really well taken, is we're not going to put Ron in touch with someone because we just we got an email we from. We don't know that the killer isn't still out there. Yeah. Like, I don't, you know, like, I want to be sure we're not talking talking to the killer. Yeah. And I don't think Detective Lombardi is the killer. He would no. have to have been like 10 years old at no. the time of the crime or something. That is a twist that no writer could sell. Yeah. No, I don't um, think that's going to happen. But I think we've had a moment of sitting with that knowledge that whoever did this was really trying to disappear Billy Newton. There was not an attempt that is suggested by the evidence that he was trying to... Um, degrade him as the hillside strangler degraded their victims by leaving them out exposed on the on the on the hills you know there this was something that had that transient not pop the lid of that dumpster at that specific time because who know who knew how long before the trash trucks got there and who knew i don't know we don't have an accounting of how many of those searched dumpsters had already been emptied you know it's like it was just it was fortuitous timing if that's the right word to use because otherwise Billy just would have slipped into the shadows and been gone I'm Christopher Rice and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn and Eric and I aren't just podcasters and bitches that's right we're also authors and you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold at thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv you can check out my right murder mystery series or sample my burning girl thrillers the best part is the more you buy our books the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories the tdps network alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time One of the other things that we've done that I don't know that it really counts for much because it is, after all, us, but we've actually gone to mm-hmm. um, the, the the place where Billy's body was found to look around. And one of the things I was struck by, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show before or not, but it's, it's an area surrounded by sound stages and photographer studios and that sort of environment like 
which seems to me to be an ideal place mm-hmm. to commit this crime. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually like the the body parts were actually found behind a recording studio, which would be soundproof. Like mm-hmm. like if you're looking for a place where you could make a huge mess that nobody would hear and nobody would see and that you would have plenty of time to clean up and maybe nobody would suspect, it is an environment like it's a really odd choice, but it seems like yeah, okay, mm-hmm. I can I can see how that would work in this area. It mm-hmm. it's a pretty low traffic area. It's a little cruisy. Um but the apparently, quest- but I we only just discovered that recently as well. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean I knew it was pretty cruisy. Um I did a ride along with the sheriff's department many years ago when I was researching a novel called Light Before Day. It was a d- detective story basically that I wrote set in West Hollywood and they took me on their ride along they took me down to the intersection of Hollywood and Highland which is not too far from where the dumpster is and their their way of saying this they're very unvarnished politically incorrect way of saying this is there was a lot of transgender sex workers in the area and their belief was that parolees who had been in prison and had sexually become more fluid as a result of they didn't use the word fluid as a result of that experience, would gravitate towards this area to recreate, you know, some of what they had enjoyed during their time in prison. That was how they assessed this area. And as West Hollywood sheriff's deputies, their job was to keep it from flowing over the border from Hollywood. If you don't know the map of Los Angeles, Hollywood Hollywood is not its own city, right? It's a part, no, of, Los it's a part Angeles. of Los Angeles. West Hollywood is an incorporated city with its own city government, its own contract with the sheriff's department. It's very suburban almost by comparison. The streets get better the minute you cross it over. Is really, into, it's like you've crossed through the portcullis. It's yeah. like a gate. It changes so dramatically. The razor wire disappears, the graffiti disappears, and yeah. suddenly you're surrounded by... Uh, landscaping. What are you doing? And You're doing hand this gestures. Is la- this they is can't my see. landscaping. Hand Land- this is landscaping box hedges, and, hands. Box hedges, hands. And uh, and uh, new architecture and right. uh, yeah. urban planning and such like. But the the area the area that we that this actually took place is literally like two blocks outside of West Hollywood. The border of West Hollywood is La Brea, mm-hmm. and we're about two blocks east of La Brea, between Orange. La Brea and, and Highland. And Highland Dude. is the, um, the the prostitution hub, right. if you will, that, yes. uh, that Christopher was talking about. But also in this area are these incredibly, like, I don't know that I would necessarily have thought of them in this way, but they would be a great place to do a murder because they are secluded and soundproofed and not going to be high traffic, so you right. have plenty of time to get rid of whatever evidence you wanted to get rid of. And added to that fact is that Billy was a performer. He was accustomed to being on sound stages. Mm-hmm. He would not necessarily have felt strange or uncomfortable going to a soundstage with somebody. He could have been led there. Yes, he could have very, been led, I've you know. got, right. But I, I think we should, I'll do, we can do a little bit of a review of Billy's last movements, what led up to his disappearance, and sort of do just a little bit re- a refresh of the story here, which is, so it's, it's Sunday. It's the Sunday before Halloween, which is a big deal in West Hollywood, and it was a big deal then. Halloween was a major costume party street festival. Billy right. is planning. Still is. He's actively. I know not so much in COVID. I think it was canceled again this yeah, year. But I think. But before, like, yeah. But otherwise, it is sort of where Halloween happens in Los Angeles. And I mean, it's today. It's way beyond even. They've oh, yeah. stopped promoting it because the crowds are so. Back intense. in the olden times, back when this happened, it was actually kind of a delightful neighborhood yeah. festival. The costumes were astounding. Mm-hmm. People did go, but not in the numbers that they go now, or did prior to COVID. And I think that we always highlight that because it is possible that a lot of people were in from out of town for that weekend, spilling over into the next week. Right. Billy's life in this moment is about leaving town. Billy is planning to move to Las Vegas with his sister, Michelle. And one of his last known phone calls is to a Greyhound bus station to check on ticket fares and also to his sister, to coordinate, you know, arrivals with her. He's moving to Las Vegas. I think his mother was planning to move to Las Vegas. He's getting out of town. 
Um, whether or not he's ended his relationship with David Ray, uh, a boyfriend and a porn director that he was actually also in business with, is a matter of debate, depending on who you talk to. Um, he uh, is he's living, he's basically couch surfing at this point in his life. He's living on a sofa in an apartment shared by a throuple, as we understand, um, one of whom may have had past sexual experiences with Billy. We're not really sure, but this is a sort of temporary living situation. I did a past sexual experience hand gesture that Eric is making fun Which of. Which looks like the thing the pips do while the they're behind. The pips do, right, exactly. That's how I refer to my past sexual experiences. Um, so it's Sunday. He has, in the morning, made plans to meet up with his roommates later. Uh, he tells them he's going to rent a video at a place called Video Gaga up on Santa Monica Boulevard. It's not around anymore. Uh, there's never any evidence of him entering Video Gaga or, ent- or renting a store. There's no record of it. He does go to Rage Nightclub around right. 3 o'clock. There's a bartender there that he's hooked up with a few times. He's flirting with the guy trying to get his attention. The guy's busy hanging decorations, which we assume are Halloween decorations. <laughs> uh, it's at, but you never know. It's still West it's Hollywood. It's West Hollywood, so who knows? It could have been you know, the big dick contest that night. Uh, nobody's paying a lot of attention to Billy, and it is at this point in the known timeline of events around Billy's last movements that Ron Wheeler's recently unearthed story fits almost perfectly, because Ron says, oh yeah, my friend was... We also know that Billy had done a couple porn shoots over the course of the days leading up to this, right? He had worked on two different movies. Right. Um, whether or not he had anything else scheduled is not something that I'm aware of or that we've has doesn't been seem like it. Us. He was kind of wrapping it up. He was here. wrapping it up. He was getting ready to leave town. So Ron's story is my roommate at the time had been working on a porn shoot. He says the guys from the movie are going down to rage to have a few drinks. Come with us. We'll party. We'll hang out. Um, Ron goes. He's introduced to Billy for the first time, who he knows from his movies, but he's never really talked to him before. Ron sees this hottie. Hanging out at the bar, Ron goes up to order a drink. He engages the hottie in conversation. The guy is very soft-spoken. He's from out of town. He asks Ron, are things going to heat up? It's a little slow right now at Rage Nightclub. Uh, Ron says, oh, absolutely. You should stick around because he's trying to like get with yeah. the guy. He goes back over to the table where Billy and the guys from the porn movie are hanging out or the porn shoot. Uh, he says, check out that hot guy. Billy gets up. Goes to the bar. On the pretext of getting a drink. Orders a drink. Ron, by his account, watches Billy and this guy have this big chat session and then leave together. And Billy never apparently circles back to say goodbye to anyone. So this was the first time anyone had ever apparently approached law enforcement by way of our podcast to say, I saw Billy leaving in the company of a stranger that has been unknown to the investigation until this time. And then you add on to that the detail that we talked about earlier, which is a year later, Ron looks up at the television and sees who he believes to be the guy, and it's Jeffrey fucking Dahmer, okay? Right, so that really sort of ratchets it up. But the bigger news than it being Jeffrey Dahmer, which is like, maybe, maybe not, but um, uh, we had a friend point out recently that a lot of gay guys were going for that look at the time. Not when the down and out Jeffrey Dahmer, but Jeffrey Dahmer, if he was out for the evening to impress. Right. Um... I, that he left with somebody else. That's it. That's it. Right That's there. That's the big detail. But and we were we we hung out around Rage. Rage has since been closed. It's probably going to reopen as a nightclub. But I think it closed during the yeah, early Lance days Bass of the pandemic. Lance Bass is reopening yeah. it. He's he has a, a bar, piano bar, I think, across the street. I've never been, but I don't um, know if it's, a piano it's called bar. Rocco's. Rocco's is big. Yeah, yeah. But um, it used to be a bank, but now it's what you call it. And now he's taken over that place. I think you asked a question that I didn't have an answer to though when we were down there, which is, did they leave out the front entrance or did they leave out the back entrance? Because by your recollection, there was a back entrance to Rage. Oh yeah, you could get you yeah. can exit out on the alley, but down if you went down past the bathrooms, the door at the end of the hall was an exit into the alleyway and they're pretty extensively developed alleyways along yeah along service there behind alleys, both yeah, of those service alleys, yeah, yeah they're they're really because otherwise i don't know how they would get garbage and deliveries in and out of those places right so and and there you go like there you go that's the last time billy is seen alive by anyone other than his killer, by anyone who has been part of the investigation or come forward since. And we've hoped that. We have asked a number of times on the show, and we continue to, 
If you were here for that particular, what year was it? 1990. If you were in West Hollywood that weekend in 1990 prior to, for Halloween or for whatever reason and have pictures from the mm-hmm. streets mm-hmm. Um, that night or any time, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'd love it if you shared them because maybe there's something in them, a shot yeah. of Billy, a shot of Billy with somebody that could maybe take us the next step. Yeah. Totally. Um, in this process, because whatever we get the the case, it seems that we believe, and to some degree, I think that the current thinking in the investigation, where the police are concerned, is that that's that Billy left that bar with his killer. Yeah, and how he wound up where he did, we don't know. Um, the other thing that I want to circle back to the location, the other thing that is also a block east of that particular location is a giant um, self-serve storage facility. This is the dumpster. We're back to the dumpster, yeah, we're not back rage. To the dumpster. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is a self-service storage facility, which would, again, be another secluded place mm-hmm. that you could get up to stuff. My God, the number of times I've seen them used in killer, um, you know, serial killer or all kinds of, even the, um, the terrible, the, what's that terrible woman's name who killed her children? The Mormon woman, the crazy Mormon woman. I hate that crazy woman who killed her children doesn't narrow it down. Um, the Mormon one who killed her children. She and that guy were the end of times. They thought the children oh, were zombies. Oh, the Daybells. Lori Daybell. Day- Lori, Lori, Lori Vallow and like, Chad Daybell. Yes. yes, yes. They they actually used a, a storage facility. Jesus that, Christ. That's one of the places they think they see them carrying the bodies out of. But yeah. it is, again, an out-of-the-way place that people wouldn't necessarily see and you would have the opportunity to yeah. destroy evidence and clean up after yourself if you were to do something along right. those lines. If you were in from out of town and looking for a place to do that that would not be a motel room. But and, and the more we talk about the proficiency of this, the more that you shine a necessary spotlight on that, the less I feel like this is an out of towner. Yeah, you just have to know the area too well, you know. And I think I think and the timing of it, as you pointed out, like knowing when the trash is being picked. Right. Up. The fact that no other body part was found within two miles of the dumpster where the head and the feet were found—that's somebody who had a strategy and a plan. And the thing that's chilling and really a little terrifying about it is that that would mean that this went right on after this happened. And that haunts me. How many missing people are. More than anything else. I've always felt like this was the tip of an iceberg. You know, like that this was somebody who knew how to do this and got busted by one transient who opened the wrong dumpster at the wrong time. Or the right dumpster at the right 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 time. time. And tore open that bag because it was not readily apparent that that dumpster contained a body. You had to search for it. And inadvertently, he did. Yeah. The other thing that's the only possible other explanation that might be a little less chilling and terrifying is that the death happened inadvertently because there was evidence of head trauma and Mm -hmm. strangulation um, in addition to the obvious um, dismemberment. It could have been, I I think the the part, the common term that they use, and I don't know if they use it in crime land, but in crime land TV Mm -hmm. is a cleaner. Like somebody is inadvertently killed during the process and, Per, famous person or rich person or criminal mm-hmm. person or whatever wants the evidence mm-hmm. disappeared, they bring in somebody who is skilled mm-hmm. at causing that kind of evidence to disappear. And so possibly this is the work of a cleaner. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. 
That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Y- yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. The cleaner theory is interesting. It's the only kind of sleep a little better at night thing because it would mean that it wouldn't be somebody who's been randomly targeting, killing, and cutting up and disposing of people right along since this happened 30 years ago. This is the thing. This is the thing. The the thing that initially disturbed me so much about this case is what disturbs me times 20 if there are other victims. I've said this right along. This was the worst time in history to try to solve this type of homicide. You have the AIDS epidemic in full swing. You still have deeply embedded mistrust of law enforcement on behalf of the gay community. You don't have a lot of active recruitment efforts on the half of the LAPD to get gay officers in there who might know the community. You just have a lot of mistrust and ignorance, which doesn't say effort was not expended. No, Labor but sometimes happened. it was expended in the wrong way. Right. Like the, the, the investigation was more traditional murder investigation than one that delved deeper into Billy's connection to the adult film industry, mm-hmm. for instance, was not necessarily a big part of the investigation mm-hmm. that they conducted. Right. Yeah. I, I think that there is um, there is really a sense that if there was a worse time for cops to be knocking on doors in the gay community. I mean, you say this all the time, and I think it's so important. So it's 1990. A cop walks into a gay bar saying, I need to know everybody who was here at a certain time. The bartender thinks, so you're going to give me the responsibility of outing these people who might be in from out of town, who might have a wife in the Inland Empire, who might have kids that are going to find... I'm not just going to start rattling off names to you. I don't care who was murdered. These are these are people with lives and, you know, like the closet was, was is still a thing, but it was very much a thing in 1990. Oh, it was very much a thing in 1990. You know? It was not like... It is really recent that we have moved into the place that we are in and it's not ideal now but right. compared to where we were in 1990 it is night and day different and so there was mistrust and people would not have been as willing to identify right. um who was there or even be cooperative so i think that would have also limited uh the 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 case in addition to that technology has changed DNA evidence has changed. Processing those things has changed. There's, there's been advances in uh, the process. Again, when we had dinner with um, Detective Lamberti, one of the things I asked him was, if this happened today, mm-hmm. would we have solved the crime? And he said, without a moment's hesitation, that it would have been that it would already have been solved that it would right. there would have been because of where they are in terms of being able to see um, digital footprints. Oh my God! Ring camera, cameras, Nest cameras, phone cameras, security cameras yeah. everywhere. Being able to mm-hmm. identify yeah, totally. people out and about in the world, plus where people were and where people are. Billy would have had a phone on him. It would have led them to other locations beyond Rage. Like there, there were a lot of things that they could. That would have advanced their um, their the, investigation the, that simply didn't exist. The at this biggest moment. piece of technology that marked people's whereabouts then was a car, and Billy didn't own one and didn't drive. I don't know if he could drive or not. He didn't own a vehicle or have access to one. So there's not even there wasn't even a car to look for. Right. You know. 
Um, so, I, yeah, it's really... So a predator, a serial predator, could have used all of the facts of this time period to their advantage. Targeting a marginalized community, targeting people who were maybe alienated from their families or loved ones, targeting gay boys who were not on the verge of moving in with their sister in a, one state over, who had been thrown out, who had been rejected... It is. There was one person that I talked to who asked not to be named um, in the commission of this. Didn't know Billy, but knew some. Was used to verify some other facts that that we were looking into, and he said, and it was sort of general loose bar talk. People said somebody was out there. People, boys would go missing. Escorts would go missing. You know, and some of that you can chalk up to the dangers of a certain lifestyle. But there was, in his opinion. People would talk of it as if it was a single force, as if it was a single person. You know, I'm a novelist, so I have to be really cautious about how far I run with stories like that. You're a novelist, too. But if there was ever a time to be a predator against gay men, this this was it, you know? Yeah, I think that you could operate with relative impunity. Right, because you had it on both scales. You had a community that was getting a little stronger dealing with the epidemic, but you had West Hollywood's incorporated now. It's known as a gay city. It's become a magnet for gay people. So you don't have to search out one unlabeled bar on one side of town. You've got bars together. You've got dance clubs happening. You've got a congregating effect. Right. But on the other hand, you've still got this social isolation and you've still got this mistrust. Yeah. And people not wanting to be identified as being part of that community or having been there or. Yeah. And with a general mistrust of people who basically are tasked with, you know, the, the, the idea and the knowledge that you are, in fact, illegal and not allowed to exist. Mm-hmm. So it's a. It puts people in a very antisocial kind of position before anything has happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be easy for a predator to capitalize on. Right. Absolutely. So I think we kind of want to review here. Okay. So the, the things that we, we have shared that are new. I mean, primarily we're talking about this because this is essentially the 31st anniversary of the murder that we're coming up on right. when and we're we, posting this episode. And as we have said right along, our primary objective in this... We don't think we're going to solve this. We do podcasts and write novels, but we would like to call it. And if we do solve it, that would be wonderful. But um, what we want to do is to keep this tragedy in people's minds and not to let it slip away, to remind people um, of Billy's um, plight and perhaps to get him justice, maybe just in the form of um, continuing attention from Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. the public and from law enforcement. Yeah, but, I, right. I was really determined to make people as obsessed with the case as I've been, you know, and 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 it's like there was not very much to get obsessed with because there wasn't a lot of information. Right. And more has been revealed as a result of us talking about it, and that's very, I, I hope that's good in the long run. But yeah, um, we know that the bag containing Billy's head was torn open by the transient, which suggests the killer did not want it discovered, and the bag was heavily knotted. Um, we know that the dumpsters within a two-mile radius of that dumpster were searched and nothing was turned up. No other parts of the body have ever been found. Um, and we can also say that all those who were um, questioned by the police during that time suggest that this was a vigorous and emphatic investigation. Whether or not the overall strategy of it was the best that it could have been is a question for the history books, I guess. But people were paying a lot of attention to this case in law enforcement. And then I think the last thing that I think we want to be really clear about, because there's been a long conversation about it, is that uh, up until the Ron Wheeler account, law enforcement was not in possession of a definitive account that had Billy Newton leaving Rage Nightclub at a very specific time. And with somebody. And with somebody. And now, because of Ron, we have what is considered a very credible account of Billy leaving around a specific time in the presence of a stranger whose identity is unknown, but who, by Ron's account bore a striking physical resemblance to Jeffrey Dahmer at the time of his arrest. This was also something Ron was very clear about, that Dahmer at the time of his arrest was a different-looking guy than the Dahmer we saw paraded in front of cameras in right. the following months and the ones right. that he was going into He was jail. still looking his best. Yeah, he he was still didn't look like the degraded prisoner that we saw yeah. in the, the subsequent. Um, and the other thing that I think we can say that is new is that the, the current thinking, the theory of the crime at this moment is that whoever 
Billy left rage with that night is who killed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because from that moment, there's still a block of time, nine to ten hours, I believe. We're talking from my math skills come into effect. Around between 3 and 4 p.m., maybe, is when they left the club, okay? The body is discovered at around 10 the next morning. So between that, that's and all Billy, the missing time. And there is no other evidence of Billy from anyone in Billy's life after that moment. Mm-hmm. They don't have. There's nobody who saw him, talked to him, communicated with him. He was gone mm-hmm. after he left that bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with whoever. Yeah. So that that was I. I didn't know that they were that. It was certainly my thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the Jeffrey Dahmer possibility obviously ratchets that up a bit, but it seemed like to me anyway but it apparently seems that way currently i don't know that it will continue to be but that the 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 police actually think so as well mhm the police investigating this crime yeah so i would love to have done this episode and say there's been a smoking gun discovered or someone has come forward and said that you know but the 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 ron wheeler story has not really been matched by anything else that we've turned up at this time but i think again to refresh the request photographs, imagery. Also, I think we can refine it. If you're listening to this and you worked for a gay publication during that time and you can remember whether or not you guys had social scene photographs or party shots. Yeah, if that's you were working at Frontier Magazine or somewhere yeah, and Frontier Magazine. take snapping shots of the yeah. the scene on 19, uh, Halloween 1990, like yeah. those could be, you know, that could be useful. It might help further... We might be able to find a shot of Billy and, God, fingers crossed, Billy out with the person he left rage with walking down the street. I just, yeah, I, I don't know. It, you know, I hold out hope. Yeah, I hold out hope too. But it's you you just never know, right? You just never know. We didn't know when we started this. Yeah, we didn't know we would have any impact on advancing it, and we have. So, so the email address again is William Newton Investigation at gmail.com. We're always posting about this on the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page where we do a lot of interaction with all of you, our beloved party people. That's always a place to get in touch with us. We will post about this episode, but we will also post the um, links to the previous episodes as well so you can sort of chart the evolution of our conversation about this. And um, do if you feel like you have something to share, share it. That, that, that's the thing. Your analysis of the Kitty Genovese case, which we did on a previous episode. Yeah. yeah. It was really an inch. It was eye-opening to me because it was the first time I'd been presented with that notion. But part of, like, I don't know if, you, if you're not familiar with the Kitty Genovese case. It was a young woman was murdered in New York a long time ago. Um, and it was, I can't even remember how long ago, in the 60s, probably. Maybe the 50s, but I think it was the 60s. The early 60s. I think think you said like 61 when you did the case. Yeah. But it was presented at the time as though, uh, as an example of how apathetic New Yorkers were because she was being attacked and screaming and murdered. And um, it was presented as though everybody was so jaded that they just just closed their blinds and ignored her cries for help. But what, what what is actually the case is Everybody thought somebody else would call. Yeah. Like when a lot of people witness a crime simultaneously, it actually brings down the likelihood that somebody will notify the authorities because everybody thinks somebody else will. So it may also be in play here that maybe it was in play here because it's part of Ron Wheeler's story. He says after they got word of the discovery of Billy's body, guys who were from the bar, who were at the bar that night got together around Halloween and they did a round robin. They said, "Do we think it has anything to do with the guy Billy left with that night?" And it was like, "Well, I'll go to the police." No, you go to the police. I don't want to go to the police. Who goes to the police? Finally, a bartender he doesn't remember and can't identify said, "I'll go to the police." And, and we don't, and we don't know. And they would have gone to the sheriff's department here in West Hollywood, which is not where the body was discovered. And they were not in charge of the case. They were in touch with the LAPD about Obviously. it. Obviously. But I just wanted to jump in there because it's that's a, that was a piece of the most important story yeah. we've been given about this case. So if you were around that time, just share your recollections. 
Um, it's one of the things that, um, in fact, I, he talked about it in the interview that he did with us on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. Detective Lamberti says that oftentimes it's the out there yeah. um, suggestion, piece of information, unexpected lead that is what solves the long cold case. Right. Absolutely. And so you might be that. Like, so you if you know anything, don't think somebody else, don't assume somebody else has told us or that it's too crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, like if space aliens um, told you that maybe that's too crazy. We, but, we, we, because we can't, we can't admit space alien evidence in a court of law. Yeah. And ultimately, doesn't mean a- it's not true, but we know there's no facility to be able to. And which, like that television show, Evil, that somehow this big hit, like, <laughs> You don't actually, somebody says the devil made them do it. You don't actually have to prove that he didn't. That's not a legal (laughs) obligation. In a court of law, you don't have to bring in exorcism experts to prove that he did not. Uh That is just not true. So um, just so you know. This will not be the last time we talk about Billy Newton, but this is, you know. And certainly this time next year, if nothing else, we will again observe this tragic anniversary. I hope with better news. I hope so um, too. But we have not forgotten Billy, and uh, we hope that you won't either. On our next episode, True Crime TV Club returns, and we're headed to a part of the country with which Eric and I are deeply, unfortunately, and wildly familiar, and that is the American South. We're serving <laughs> I up. I don't consider it unfortunate. <laughs> there were some moments <laughs> that I wouldn't want to repeat. The familiarity can be unfortunate, yes, the depth there, of it. And there's some things I wouldn't want to repeat. But... Yes. We're serving up season one, episode one of Southern Gothic entitled They Call Me Animal. Standard disclaimer, you do not need to watch the episode. We are going to serve it but up why not? in steaming detail. People are busy listening to all of our archive. They don't have time to watch well, television. You know, that's first. Know. Okay, let's prioritize it. First, listen to all of our archive and all of our shows and write us about it and uh, give, send, you know, sign up for the mailing list and all the other stuff. And then you can watch the other true crime TV shows so that we can all talk about it together because I just think that's fun. Christopher and I talk about these shows all the time. All the, the time. The ones you all hear about are a very um, a very limited group, but our biggest conversation lately- I was going to say, let's make that a surprise <laughs> in the next episode. Okay. Because I was like, because you may be surprised by the craptacularness of what we're going to talk about. Yeah, there we have an absolute, a new uh, uh, obsession that <laughs> but, we'll, we'll, we'll reveal in our next episode. <laughs> God, I'm so embarrassed. Okay, until I'm not. then. And nothing embarrasses you. No, You're shameless, Eric Shaw. Probably true at this point. Shameless. Until uh, next time and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. <laughs>